Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Taylor Mackey. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackey. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spring from the Wallery. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gasserine and you're listening to Not the Footage. Yes, you're indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. And as usual, we've got a great guest lined up for you. I know he listens to the show, and so uh, it is one of the first times he's actually been a guest on the show. And I'm talking about the new chief executive of the Perth Redbacks basketball team, Ryan Lennigan. And the reason we're talking to him, John, is like many sports, struggling to find a home or facilities that they can call home. And uh, as I thought I'd catch up with him just because it is something that's not unique to his sport. It's happening in a lot of sports at the moment, especially as we see clubs and associations getting bigger. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morris. And I'm John Lee. Good to be back. Yes, yes. How are you doing? I'm very good. Very good. Been doing much sporty things lately? Not a great deal. <laughs> a little bit. It's been bit. cold. It's been it's very, very cold. Lying under a doona weather. I did go to the rugby, though. Oh, did you? And that's what I want to talk about. Oh, you want to hit off with the rugby, okay. Yeah, it was my first visit to our state-of-the-art, as it's always described, Optus Stadium, as a spectator, as a paying punter. Oh, okay. And I have to say, it was a bloody awful experience. (laughs) Uh, It was absolutely terrible in that that venue, as we banged on about before they even created it, is useless for rectangular sport. And that will be one reason why I won't go. Although I have been told if you want to watch rectangular sport, you have to sit right up in the gods so that you're looking down on the pitch because every other level you're just so far away. Uh, it's just you not good. You know what good. sells the stadium, though? It's the light show. Oh, yeah, and that and, was and fantastic. It looks, it, and it looks fantastic on television. Yeah. Because on television the cameras are, are getting the same view as you'd get if it was in a rectangular stadium. You know, you're not... Nothing changes for the viewer at home, and the, and the stadium looks fantastic in on television. Yep. It's brilliant. And, and I'll be honest, so, that light show at the beginning was superb. Yeah. You couldn't fault it. And I got messages from England fans who were watching the game in the UK going, wow, this stadium looks amazing. But then it all went downhill. That was the highlight. I mean, the rugby match I didn't think was a particularly good game. Yeah. But the atmosphere, and I've asked several people... I, John, have been fortunate to watch a lot of sport in a lot of countries around the world, and that is the worst atmosphere I have ever been in at any sporting event that I've paid an entry fee. Really? Without even a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, even than Swindon, yeah. I would have thought there'd have been a couple of losses there at Swindon. Oh, look, there's, there's been, been some bad games, but the atmosphere, there's at least there's an atmosphere. There was yeah. nothing at Optus at the weekend. But that's not what I wanted to touch on, because... You know, you talked about the light show there, and it is fantastic. And we've talked many, many times about, is sport now about sport, or is it about entertainment? Now, to me, if the sport becomes secondary, then you've got to get your entertainment side absolutely spot on. Because if you don't, you're going to lose on two levels. You're going to lose because the sport has become secondary, and that might not be quite as good, and you're going to lose because your entertainment side was crap. Now, that's where at the weekend, to me, it was fail, fail on both levels. And Rugby Australia have got a lot to do with that in the term that, you know, we've paid for tickets and they go up to the TMO for something that's happened on the pitch and infringement. 
we were all left in the dark as fans inside the stadium. What is going on? Nobody was telling us what they were looking for, what the decision was. You couldn't hear it. Um, and that, I think, is insulting when you're charging people the amount of money you're charging to go and watch. And on top of that, to then offer the tickets for $50 because you haven't sold out the stadium in the days leading up to it to try and boost your crowd, how insulting is that to people who've paid over $150? You know, And I mean, I believe they're doing the same thing now with the Man United game where tickets were $240, they're now knocking them out for $50. Now, someone's going to really arc up about this soon because you cannot possibly do that. And what that says to me is that the tickets are too high in the first place. So what's the money going on? Is it going on the teams or is it going on your entertainment that you're creating? So you've got this problem now of getting your pricing right because the entertainment package you're putting alongside the game is costing you too much. So your price of your tickets have gone up. I'd say do away with the entertainment. Let's just go back to watching the game. That's what we're going to watch. Yeah, fair points. Um, you know how complex life is, our society is? I mean, I, it shouldn't be. No, no, I'm, hang it, bear me out. Uh, I, I just think about what I do. What do I do? Something pretty plain and basic. I deliver milk and fruit. I pick it up in boxes and I take it to whoever's paid for it, right? Yep. And yet, the, the organisation that's required for that simple thing to happen is actually quite complex. There's a lot more goes into it than you'd ever think. Oh, well, here's an order, pack the fruit, put it in a box, and off you go. Yeah, but someone's got to plan your route as there's, well. There's all, sort, there's all sorts of little nuances. That until you get in there, you obviously don't understand. And our, our whole society is so, so, so complex, right? And sports suffering, that's what we're suffering under now. Can you imagine trying to develop a PA system for that stadium, a state-of-the-art PA system for Optus or yep. whatever they call it. Okay, you think about it, you do all the work when it's empty. Right? And you do all your testing when it's empty. Have you ever turned up a PA system in an empty stadium? Oh, you, yeah, you booms. Can't, you can't, but you can't hear anything. Yeah. You can't actually tell what anybody, because everything's echoing from everywhere, yeah. reverberating around. Put 50,000 people in there. And what might, you might have thought is a really, really good VA system turns into an absolute dud. So it's a very, very complex thing to get right, okay? We've got to admit that first. And But they should have it right by now. Uh, uh, I don't think it, it's ever going to be perfected because it's too difficult a task. But you can get it pretty good. Yep. Okay? And so in a modern stadium like that, everybody in most parts of the ground should be able to discern what the guy's saying. If you've got a small crowd... Closing off a tier, you should be able to shut off those speakers or whatever else, however they work it. But you, remember, you wouldn't remember the days when, um, you know, the ground are announced, it would be one of those grey, tonalised type speakers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and everybody would go, what did he say? What did some bloke further down? I think he just said the pies are on sale or something yeah, like that. I do that, remember you know? that. Um, so we've come a long way. We're oh, still we have. better than that. But. Um, my problem with the, the PA systems is what they use them to, to what they play over them. I don't need music blasting in every spare second of the game. I get it why you might play some music while, um, while a, a player's injured on the ground and they're yep. treading him or there's a stop play for whatever reason. Maybe they've just scored a try or and everybody's moving back. Oh, yeah, well done, team. Ray, Ray. But this constant 
you know, every time something happens. Well, it was like elevator music, honestly, on Saturday night. It was just, uh, the music was inappropriate music for a sporting event where you want high tempo stuff to get everybody in the mood. Or, and I mean, this is the thing. I've been to sporting events where the music has been superb. I, I wrote in a piece on my blog, notthefootyshow.com, about Chris Shooters, who was the guy who did the music at the Hockey World League in Belgium. He was a DJ. He got the mood and he got the crowd absolutely rocking. So good was he that the FIH took him to India for the finals in Raipur. And a completely different audience from a Belgian audience to an Indian audience. But again, he managed to get the crowd absolutely pumping because he was good at his job and he knew what to play to get people dancing. So what what you're saying is... More Thin Lizzy and less ambient. No, I'm music. not saying necessarily Thin Lizzy, but the boys are back in town. I'm a big fan <laughs> of that one. But, but again, here, to, to, sh- to show you an example of that, where it, exactly backing up what you, you're just saying there, when I did the futsal at the Asian Indoor Martial Arts game, I was commentating that in Ashgabat in Turkmenistan. Now, they played predominantly local music. I'd never heard any of the songs, and every single time, and the grand announcer was superb, his guy from the UK, and he got the crowd again, where I don't know what, whether how many of them spoke English, but he got them going with his energy, and the music there was superb. And just to show you how good the music was, I actually asked for a copy of the playlist, which I have still, and several of us that had come from overseas asked for the songs because it was just it created such an atmosphere, and it was local music. So what sport was that? That was futsal. Okay. Yeah, indoor five-a-side football. So this was going on while the games were being No, played. no, no. It was no, just no. The, the pre-game and okay. at half-time. Okay. And, yeah, they didn't do the, when a player goes down, let's give it some music. No. Oh, there was a little bit of music when a goal was scored. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, that seems to be the norm nowadays. Had, see, you're a commentator. I know that um, commentators hate grand announcers with a passion. <laughs> I don't hate grand announcers. I don't like bad ones. <laughs> but it's common across a lot of commentators. And it's, it's funny how many times I've seen a commentator going through their spiel, live to air, national, national, whatever it is, and the ground announcer pipes up or the music starts or, and it, and you can see their face growing up and their intense passion. I am trying to do my job. Shut up. I think the only time I've had one like that was the, and I can't remember if it was the Champions Trophy or whether it was the Women's Hockey World Cup in London. And it became a big issue because the DJ was cranking the music so loud that when we were actually commenting, we couldn't hear the director in our ears. So it made it very difficult for us to actually do the job. And there was a level that they're meant to go to so that we can still hear the direction in our headpieces. And, you know, I mean, I had it cranked full on, like the loudest it would go. And it wasn't as if they were speaking softly in my ear. But you just were missing cues because you could not hear because they'd cranked the music so high. So I've only had it once happen. When I did the first State of Origin game they had here, three or five years ago or whatever it was, uh, they were broadcasting outside on a balcony in one of the corporate boxes. And I, when the... Teams ran out and the game started. The cheer was that loud. I had my volume in my headphones turned up full and the two commentators were shouting at each other and I could barely make out what they were saying. The levels were going... I, I can relate to that because years ago when the Perth Glory played, I think it was Melbourne Knights, the night game, 
at Subiaco Oval in the old NSL final series. The roar when Ivan Ergic scored, I remember I was down on the pitch and I couldn't hear anything and George Grilicic was trying to cross to me (laughs) and I just could not hear anything at all. Like it was just the roar was so big. Um, and it was amazing. It was a fantastic. I was. I feel privileged to have been there because it's something that I will never forget. It was and just amazing. To further back up your point, uh, that State of Origin game was a great uh, event. It was. It was a really good event. It was a you know, New South Wales flogged Queensland, so it was a contest. It wasn't that fantastic. But um, you're right about that distance. Um, you, it was very. You could see what was going on, but you couldn't. It was not sitting three rows back at Leichhardt yeah. Oval. It wasn't that sort of thing. And, yeah, because it was new and everybody's cheering and lots of sort of, I want to go along because it's a place to be seen types were there, rah, 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 rah. There was still a big contingent of hardcore dedicated fans that probably lifted that event. Uh, there, there was just no singing at all at this at the rugby. Look, I thought it was just an England game with yeah, no singing. I know it was terrible. They didn't even kind of have them all in one place. But there look, were, oh, you know what? They're probably not allowed to do an official England supporters probably thing because not. the security go, no, we can't have all of those drunken Englishmen sitting together. <laughs> <laughs> That's bad, guarantee it. Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. But look, as I say, I thought for as a rectangular venue, terrible. What I will just say, John, before we get to our guest is that there are some sports that do that music, entertainment, package the sport with the entertainment absolutely superbly. Rugby Australia at the weekend was one that did not. It was a complete fail. Just two quick things before we get to Ryan. Hang on a sec, Ryan. Um, uh, The stadium. First of all, let's start with uh, Rugby Australia and the Wallabies turning up on the Thursday. Not a great way to promote your game for what was a Saturday night game. Um, they did very little as far as engaging with the community at all. Yep. And I'm not, this isn't a blame. Eddie Jones was actually critical of them was for he? that. Yeah. yeah. And, and they deserve criticism. They should have been here the week before. Yeah. And, and I think Rugby Australia didn't market the game. I mean, my, ne- my next door neighbour didn't even know it was taking place. Given last week was, uh, school holidays, the first of two weeks of school holidays, imagine all the clinics that those Wallabies players could have been out there doing. Yeah, and you know missed the, opportunities all around. Absolutely. Second thing about the stadium, do you remember your interview with Ron Alexander, the guys who's in charge? Yeah, of, the of course I do. Yeah, yeah you probably still got a copy of it. Somewhere, I do. Hopefully, do you remember the, how they they were going to build it for? Yeah, because yeah, they retractable do, seating. Well, they, there is retractable seating there. No, there isn't. Yeah, there no, is. there isn't. They've dropped drop in seating. Oh, okay, you, you're right. They have got different. But yeah, I mean, we were sold that stadium as a as a rectangular stadium as much as it was going to be a, an oval stadium for football. But they just built the football stadium. Yep, and they didn't build the sides of it high enough to have retractable come in as well deliberately. Yeah. I'm Azuma Nelson, and you are listening to Not the Footy Show. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we've got a special guest and uh, we're very pleased to welcome the new Chief Executive of the Perth Redbacks basketball team, Ryan Lennigan. Ryan Lennigan, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Great to be here. Long time listener, first time caller to the show. 
Well, it's good to finally have you on the show. Thanks for listening for all those years. But uh, you've just taken on the role as CEO of the Redbacks Basketball here in Perth, Western Australia. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about who the Redbacks are and how the Basketball League works in this region? Perth Redbacks, Perth Basketball Association, which is our, our legal competition name, We've been in existence since 1964, so it was a long and storied history. We've got names like Luke Longley, like Andrew Vlahoff, the, the real celebrities of, uh, of Perth basketball, of Australian basketball that have come through the club. We have our, uh, our base, our administration base in Victoria Park, which is um, one of five local government associations we work with. We're based out of Belmont as well and Loftus um, in North Perth. But ultimately, we're using 22 venues just to facilitate our competitions and our training. Uh, 2,500 participants, um, all predominantly juniors. Uh, basketball's in a great state in this space. Uh, it's a great space in this state, and we're, we're very lucky to be driving that growth and, and having some real key wins. And, and you have a team, obviously, that is an elite team that competes in the local competition. We do. So the State Basketball League, which was the the uh, the the statewide uh, high performance league has been rebranded to NBL One West. We have uh, two franchise teams in that model, so our men's team and our women's team. But for the most part, Perth Basketball Association, uh, of, you know, operating as that Perth Redbacks, we're a junior association. We have you know close to two and a half thousand of those junior participants across a number of different competitions, many of which we we run ourselves. Um, and it's, uh, it's been great to see that growth year on year just continues to go up for basketball. Now, you were saying there, 22 venues. I mean, that must be pretty hard to manage over so many venues. There is so much logistics that goes into what we do, um, and it's, it's been a key challenge for me coming into this role just to understand things as simple as like the access codes to get into school or local government venues, who we're speaking to if the lights aren't turning on, um, making sure that if there is a venue change, our teams know about that venue change as soon as possible. It's, it's a massive toll on our admin staff, and they do a phenomenal job of managing that, um, but it just goes to show why we are so, um, uh, so holistically focused on getting the home of the Perth Redbacks. We'll talk about that in a sec, but I mean, obviously communication has a big issue. If there is a change of venue, what do you find is the best way? Because some people are going, oh, I want a WhatsApp message, I want an email, I want it via this, via that. It must be very hard to satisfy everybody and make sure you get the message across. Particularly with volunteers. I think that while the venue change itself is usually done by paid staff, of which we have um, several, when it gets down to Johnny, who needs to know that his, his training time has been changed from venue A to venue B, we are finding the immediacy of something like WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger is usually the best way. It just goes to show the, the ever-changing shape of communication in sport. It's, it's no longer the, uh, the phone call to the parents. The, the, the parents are, are usually pretty happy to be uh, a bit of a distance away, and it's usually that WhatsApp message. Now, you mentioned there as well you're looking for a venue, a home, and this is something I think that we're witnessing in a lot of sports now is that clubs and associations like your own really need to have their own base, but local governments are saying, well, it can't just be for you, it's got to be for more than one sport. We are definitely facing that. So I guess some, in some historical context, 
the Perth Redbacks have been looking for a home for more than 20 years. Uh, my time with the Perth Redbacks has been very short in terms of that journey. I've certainly come in at a great time. I think we're in a, a great position to be really driving uh, a facility in, in the next couple of uh, months and years for the Perth Redbacks. But we consider ourselves first and foremost a family club. And for a family to exist, it needs a home. Currently being spread across 22 venues with very little interaction at one centralised venue means that we don't feel as much like a family and we're very keen to achieve that. We have some challenges. There's, there's no denying that we are an inner city uh, sporting association. Land is expensive, density rates keep going up. For us to have what we would consider our home would require something in the vicinity of eight courts. And for that to occur, we need to be working very closely with our local government authorities, with the state government, the federal government, to ensure that we can get that funding and that land alignment. Clearly, the, the points you raise are really valid points that, you know, price of land is going up, the actual facilities are, are limited opportunities. But I would think the other thing that happens is that if you're squeezed out and there's no facility available, then the opportunities for people to play, be they juniors or seniors or even just social members, makes it very, very difficult. And those then have an impact on society in terms of health. Parents don't want to travel too far if their kid wants to play a particular sport, and that's going to be a, uh, a trouble across any sport, whether it's basketball, whether it's football, whether it's uh, hockey, netball. Whatever sport it is, parents generally want to be close to where they're playing. We do have a significant challenge in that space that, um, unlike uh, some of those uh, outer-reaching uh, local government authorities who have plenty of land and can ensure that they're spreading out, we just don't have that opportunity, which means we've turned to, as, as you pointed out, working out some compromises and some opportunities with other indoor sports. The first one that comes to mind there, given we've been working so closely with them, is volleyball. Uh, we operate on very similar structures in terms, of, uh, in terms of the size of a basketball court and a volleyball court. We, uh, we know that we can manage the access to that venue across those two sports, um, but ultimately, for a venue which in some respects could cost us upwards of 30 or 40 million to build in the first place, we need to be working closely with other sports to ensure that we can all have equal access to that particular facility at different times of the week. The other problem you have with that is if you're investing 30 million, you'd obviously want to promote the venue, have games live streamed, you would think, or even broadcast if that possibility ever came along. But then you face the problem by sharing that facility, because I know what broadcasters are like. They don't like having on the court mixed lines. They want very clear lines, which is a basketball court, which is... So you face then those problems, because as far as I know, there aren't any temporary lines you can put down at the moment. No, but that's a, it's a good idea. I might have to put a patent out on that one on some temporary <laughs> lines, similar to uh, the football mark by the referee to uh, hold the, the free kick line back. Um, I think that's, that's a, really, a really good point, and it's probably the rock and the hard place that we find ourselves in. If as an association, uh, as, a, as a basketball club, we hold to the value and to our need to have 100% uh, access to that venue, the likelihood of that venue being funded is basically nil. Yeah. We know that there is going to have to be a degree of sharing with other sports. 
we have such significant growth within basketball that we're turning kids away from being able to play. That's a really rough outcome for someone who's worked in sport for a very long time. The last thing I want to be doing is turning away participation within a particular sport. It does mean we're going to have to compromise. It does mean that that particular show court for a, an NBL one fixture might have some volleyball lines on it as well. If that means that more kids can play and our association and our club feels like it has a home, that's probably a compromise worth, worth making. You've talked about the vast sums of money required. How do you see the model working? Is it going to be a case of whoever you share the facility with will share the costs? Or are you going to own the facility and then sort of rent it to them when they need it? Or will it be a government-owned facility? Because there are lots of cases where people own the facilities, but they can't make it pay. It then becomes almost like a noose around their neck. It's a really good question. There is certainly examples of sports in Western Australia and Australia in general who wanted to own and manage their own venue, but by doing so, that has meant the cost for participation have skyrocketed. It becomes, as you said, a noose around their neck, and really the ones who suffer are the parents who are paying that money for their kids to, to participate. For us, we're, we're very open to uh, any number of models. When, when you look at I guess what our non-negotiables are from an association perspective, it's the number of courts. As I said before, if we're already spread across 22 venues, us adding in another venue at four courts is not really achieving what we need to as a club. Ultimately, we're looking at the fact that for us to feel like we have a home, we need that 8 to 12 courts within the inner city metro catchment region. And we want to make sure that to be able to do that, uh, we're, we're working with all authorities, whether it's local government who basically owns the land, whether it's the state and federal governments who would be probably putting that money in to, uh, to build uh, the, the construction at the time. It's not to mention that anybody doing renovations or building at the moment knows how expensive costs are at the moment. That's a, hopefully a short-term thing, but again, it's one of those variable factors that we're just trying to weigh up with the people we're working with as well. One of the other things I would imagine with an indoor sport such as basketball, I mean, there's no reason why you can't go and play outside either, but, but it tends to be an indoor sport. I would think that we're seeing a lot of local governments selling off or, or giving their facilities, which were traditionally theirs now, to sports management organisations, let's call them that, I don't know what else, or leisure companies. I mean, that must make it even harder for you guys because you're not actually dealing with the local government and they are all in the profit business and so suddenly the costs go up, which you're saying, again, can cripple a family if they've got two or three kids that are playing. You're exactly right. So the, the issue with those for-profit um, facility management companies sitting between the local government authority and the sport itself is that there is really no checks and balance to ensure that costs are being kept at a, as low as possible for participants. By us running our own venue or working very closely with the LGA to run the venue, we can ensure that the cost savings are passed on to our participants. That's just not possible under for-profit system and there's certainly plenty of examples, unfortunately, where uh, you get white elephants of facilities because it's been managed by a for-profit entity who jacks up their prices, who wants to make sure that they're returning a, a profit and an outcome for their stakeholders and their shareholders. 
But in doing so, no one's using the facility just because they can't afford the cost of the, the court um, per hour. Yeah, it's a really difficult situation. And I mean, I'm thinking as well, if you look at all of those factors, and there is always the demand for you as a CEO to grow participation, to grow the sport, there's even a government push to try and get you to do that. But if you don't have the tools to do that, or the tools you have to use are cost prohibitive, how can you achieve those goals? It probably comes back to what we said originally about compromises. So I think that we are very clear both as a, as a, um, as a Perth Basketball Association um, board of directors, myself as the CEO and our staff, that we are in the business of providing basketball opportunities and the best possible basketball experience for those who, who are part of our club. For us to do that, cost is one of those factors, and it does mean that sometimes there's courage in turning down an opportunity because it wouldn't be right for our participants. And even in the last couple of months, we've had some of those opportunities where there are new developments that either the local government authority or the state government is considering putting money towards. But we're saying that for us as a basketball association, for us as participants wanting a home, we don't want to move into that particular space because it's just going to be too expensive for our participants. That's a really tough call to make because uh, we have plenty of families who are banging down the door wanting to join our competition, wanting their kids to play basketball. But as with any uh, staff member or as any member of the board, we're only ever caretakers within a not-for-profit entity. We want to make sure that we're making the best decisions possible so that when we look back in 2064 at the 100-year anniversary of the Perth Redbacks, we can look back to this time and say we made the right decisions for the longevity of the association. Now, one of the reasons, Ryan, I wanted to catch up with you is because obviously I know that you've worked in the field in hockey, you've worked in football, soccer, for those who think there's another form of football. Um, <laughs> And I would think that we're seeing the same problems in a lot of cases, that there are just not enough facilities for those sports to accommodate the amount of people that are playing the sport. I mean, having come to this role and witnessed that in those sports and now obviously faced with that problem here, have you got an overall view on the situation? It's exacerbated by basketball because of the indoor nature of the sport. As you said, you can play outside, but as the sports become um, more commercialised, more professional, uh, more eyes on, for example, the NBA, people want to play inside, and providing opportunities for people to play inside is, is a good outcome. At both hockey and football, that problem was a little bit less because green space, particularly in Western Australia, is a little easier to come by. What I would say, though, is that with those outdoor sports, the quality of that green space is becoming more and more obvious in terms of the differences and the amount of money that people are putting into that space. You have fields uh, that were just getting to the point where they were unusable because of so much overuse or, or um, mismanagement of those fields. As soon as they come out of play, Really, green space is being shared by a number of outdoor sports already. And then you look at hockey, and certainly it's, uh, it's, it's one of those areas that you and I have spoken about at length, about the recreation of artificial turfs, which in some respects are pretty hockey-specific as well. They cost a lot of money to put in. They cost a lot of money to maintain. 
the participants per square metre of turf usage in hockey in Western Australia is the highest um, participants per square metre anywhere in Australia. People are begging to get onto hockey turfs, but to get that land to be able to build a sustainable future for the sport is a, it's a really tough compromise. Sure it is now. I mean, one of the points you made there is basketball wants to be played inside. One of the benefits, I think, of that is by playing it inside, you can create a fantastic atmosphere which makes it far easier to sell. Would you agree with that one? It's a sport, and I will preface this by saying every sport goes through cycles. There are times when it's at the top when growth is going great, um, and certainly basketball is going through that now. And I think there's a number of factors that work there. The first, and I'd say probably foremost, is that it's a relatively non-contact sport that's played indoors. And if you've got little Johnny who you're looking at signing up to a particular sport, your ability to buy a coffee, to come in, to cheer him on on the sidelines on a relatively quick uh, time frame, you know, our games are done in 45 minutes, that's pretty appealing to mum and dad. So it's already got a lot of those environmental factors working for it. It's a sport where... The NBA is getting plenty more visibility, where the NBL is getting much more visibility in Australia. So it's really about us as a sport, but also as Perth Basketball Association, making sure that we're, we're cutting the wheat while that sun, uh, that sun shines as well. We need to make decisions while the going is good that's going to set up the sport and the association for more than just this 10 or 15 year period for the eventual um, history of, of however long basketball's in existence for. Ryan, great catching up with you, and I wish you all the best because you've got a tough task ahead of yourself. But it sounds like you've got a plan in your head, and let's just hope you can fulfil it. Thanks, Ash. Pleasure. Hi, I'm Thomas the Hitman Hunt, and you are listening to Not the Foodie Show. And that was Ryan Lennigan, the chief executive of the Perth Redbacks. And as I said at the top of the show, normally he's a listener. This time he's been a guest. But, uh, John, I think one of the interesting things that he was telling me there that he faces as an indoor sport where you're dealing with local government and, of course, sports centres is this trend that we've seen probably in the last 20 years where the local government doesn't want to run those sports centres anymore. So they've given them away to companies that now run them and of course those companies are trying to make profit like everybody's trying to make profit and so that's driven the costs up for all the users and that to me is a really big issue in you know if we're going to try and encourage people to participate in sport and uh, make sport affordable for everybody to have a little bit of equity there oh yeah look I, i don't think there's much we can say about this in the short time we have left on this podcast when you consider, I mean, this isn't about sport, this, this issue. It's, it, it's manifesting in, in the sports world. But, you know, should government run it as a debt or not? That's, that's yeah. essentially the argument we're talking about. It comes back to sort of basic people's political beliefs. There was a time when governments were supposed to run at debt. The idea that governments would run at a profit was like, well, mate, you can't do that. I think, I personally think with sporting things and healthy activities, then yes, you shouldn't be looking to make money from it in that, because the knock-on effect is actually oh, beneficial well, no. in that you're going to have a healthier society, which means at the other end you're not going to be putting the it's, pressure on hospitals or stuff like that. It's not that governments want to make profit out of it. 
they don't want to. Uh, they don't want to make losses. They don't want to make the debt. So we will take some money for this facility that we still own, and uh, you can run it and do what you like with it. But we we can guarantee we've got this much money, and that's going to mean at the end of the day we at least have a balanced budget, and we might even get a surplus out of it. How about that? We'll sell ourselves on how much of a surplus. There was a time when the, the expectation was. If the government took on debt, it was because we were getting something as a community, and you know, yeah. trains, all, all of the infra, transport infrastructure services ran at debt. They no bus service ever has ever run at a profit, or probably has, but mostly the idea is yeah, it's a public service. It's a public, and and guess what? Government debt is society's debt. It's our debt. So we're carrying our debt. If you get what I'm talking about. Yeah, and probably it was. Ratepayers' money that built the sports centre in the first place, and now yeah, there's an yeah. outsider that's making money off me as I go to use it. That's the bit that's kind of hard to get your head around. So, to, to really get around, if you if you want to solve this problem, then we have to change our perceptions of what government is there for and what government's supposed to do. Because it, it it's not just sports service; it's health. Everything is being turned into this now. Everything's becoming a money-making opportunity for someone else. And what ends up happening, who pays in the end anyway? Yeah. We do, either through taxes, because or we've got through to support a lack of service. No, or we're paying a third party who's making a profit out of it. Yep. I'd rather carry that debt, as go- uh, that, that profit as government debt, than allowing people to be making money out of what should be a community service. No argument here. What are you going to talk about, or is that it? Well, <laughs> I, I did hear a rumour, though, that a rather large international sporting organisation, I believe they call themselves the third largest international sport, or is it fourth now? might be eighth after this little bit happens. Um, going to lose their TV deal. Really? Who's yeah, that? It might be, I don't know, just a stick and ball game. Golf? No, it wouldn't no, be no, golf. It's not golf, mate. <laughs> Slightly bigger ball? Yeah, yeah. Slightly thicker stick. And sort of a yellowy ball and a white ball, depending on the colour of the pitch? Sometimes, yeah, greeny, yellow, yeah, yeah. Oh, and we don't play on, on grass. Definitely okay. not grass. Oh, so what have you heard then? Well, the, the, the company in charge of all their platformy stuff is going to fold. Well, not, they're not going to fold. They're going to walk away from their deal, their 10-year deal. That's a 10-year deal, yeah. yeah. It's about two years old, isn't it? So we're obviously talking about the FIH and the Nagra Kadelsky. No, I can't confirm that. <laughs> well, I'm assuming that's what you're... No, I'm just hearing that there's serious issues with the current deal as it stands. Maybe they'll rewrite it or re, you know, rejig it or something for the future because it is a 10-year deal. It's a long time to sign a... Uh, an experimental deal, because that's what it was. It's been an experiment. Well, it'll be very interesting, because I don't know, I'm sure you would have seen that story as well, that Channel 7 is trying to sue Sue. Cricket Australia for the drop in standards of their product that they paid money for. Now, that is could be a milestone case, depending on how it goes, because a lot of sports could find themselves in trouble if the quality of what the event is... I mean, certainly, I would say that the A-League would be one that would fall under that, because the A-League, there is no doubt that the quality of that, compared to six, seven years ago, is far below what it was. What I found interesting about that Channel 7 case is one of the major sticking points is the fact that CA holds players out. Players who are under contract 
to CA. Yeah, Cricket okay. Australia, that yeah. is, for those and overseas. Who, who, who may or may not hold big bash league contracts with um, uh, organisations that hold a licence under the control of Cricket Australia, right? So, and we're talking... And the Channel 7 is saying, you're not allowing the best players to buy. By keeping these players out, and Steve Smith last year was a classic example, although as far as I can figure it contractually, he wasn't eligible to play under the rules that Channel 7 signed up for the competition to be played under. Um, But we've got Mitchell Stark this week. Now, tell me whether Channel 7 would like Mitchell Stark to be playing Big Bash or not. Yes. yes. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. What's Mitchell Stark doing? I'm not playing Big Bash this year. I'm going to concentrate on my international cricket career. Now, there's been other cricketers that have done the same thing in the past and, uh, yeah. and cricketers that have actually said, no, I'm giving up international cricket to go and play a T20. That, and that's fine either way. But, what, what, but this again- Channel 7's arguing... That the best players aren't in the competition. Shouldn't they be suing Stark as well? Or players that have stood out? But, but this is where you've got this centralised contract thing that I don't like. Because before that, players played. Because they needed to play in order to get in the test team or to get into the one-day international team because there wasn't that silly T20 game around in those days. But what you're doing now by having the centralised contracts is they're trying to look and manage those players so they the Cricket Australia can get the maximum out of them at international yeah. level. If you turn it back to what you were talking about before in hockey, and if you look at the Pro League when it was in its first iteration in season one, you know, there were some players or coaches were using development players to come on the trips down to Australia to give them the experience in the hope that, you know, because the Pro League at the end of the day, they would just giving them blooding new young players. So you could argue the same thing. Well, we Why are the to top... look at the Pro League this year and some of the teams that were thrown up to compete. Yeah, so, so then you could turn around and say exactly the same thing, that you're not putting the best players out on the pitch. Now, if you turn it around to football and you go, oh, well, football, usually we know when it's an international friendly, but then if you... And again, you've got like the warm-up games with Man United and Aston Villa, Leeds and Crystal Palace games. all coming here. They're pre-season games, so everyone knows... They're not necessarily going to be full strength. They're not necessarily be playing full tilt. So those you understand. But I think if you're selling a game as being the top players, and it comes again to as something you hate, which is marketing. If your marketing model is saying that the best players are going to play and it's going to be a tip-top competition, then they have to play. Oh, sport consistently sells more than it delivers. Yeah. Consistently does that. And very often it's not necessarily the fault of sport. You know, player X can get injured at any time. You can get injured in the warm-up to the game you're supposed to be playing. Correct. So but I think people accept a, injuries. Yeah, but it, so it's very much a fluke still. You know, you can't guarantee... No one can guarantee anything in sport. What I find annoying, though, is when you do see events marketed on the back of players' yeah. images... And then you find out that they're not playing. On, and I mean, there's, there's been cases they never where... They were playing. Yeah, exactly. You knew, the punters knew that they were never going to play anyway. Yeah. And oh, that, to me, is wrong. And, know, I, the and I, question at the moment is, is Ronaldo going to turn up? He's not going to come there, I don't well, think so. I don't know, because he's got relations here. His grandmother... Yeah, but, but now supposedly Manchester United is saying they don't want him next season. So if you're not going to use a player next season, why would you bring him to Australia? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you're right. They have been talking about that. Yeah. yeah, and they're saying they don't want him because he's costing too much and he's not beneficial to the team now because well, he's he getting older and he can't drop back and he doesn't. Hey, <laughs> well, what about if he goes to Leeds or Villa? He might still be able to come out. Yeah, I don't think they could match his wages somehow. Uh, MCMA is very happy about uh, Aston Villa turning up. Oh, I'm sure. Yes, he's very happy. He was hoping to get together with his mate Melanchino and they could go and watch a couple of games together. Ah, I don't know who Melanchino <laughs> is. <laughs> anyway, just, just before we wrap up, congratulations on your 250th podcast with the reverse stick. Some yes, commitment. Oh, yeah. It's been a while. Once a week. That's pretty yeah. heavy. You haven't had a holiday? No. No, I haven't. I know. I think you deserve <laughs> one. I haven't had it. That's five years without a holiday. It is. I haven't thought of it like that. There you go. Um, it's just you can't find anyone to fill your role, can you? Well, it's hard dealing with Bozo, keeping him under control. I can imagine. See ya. We'll be back next week.